From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father John Tregilio. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Monday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. If you'd like to be part of the program, we'd love to hear from you. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. You can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams. Michael McCall producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host is he is every Monday, Father John Tregilio. How are you? Oh, well, thank you. Um, Got an email here from Mary, and she asks, "How do you change your attachment to sin, to a sin you have done repeatedly in the past? God has healed me from that sin, so it's been a long in the past. But like you said on a previous show, it's easy to look back fondly on some of those experiences." Uh, yes, it's not an easy thing to do, but it is something that we need to at least try. And uh, whether we don't do it in this life, that's what God willing we have purgatory for. But uh, the Lord would like us to take advantage of what we have here on earth right now. And the best way that you can fully detach yourself from all your past venial sins is to just meditate without obsessing. Because we don't want people to go from one extreme of laxity to scrupulosity. So, you know, I, we don't want you to spend hours and hours painstaking, like, you know, like when the IRS audits you, <laughs> you know, that's uh, a very unpleasant <laughs> experience. But just a very simple examination of conscience, um, maybe just a few minutes. Um, you do that every night at, 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 before you go to bed. We do it in the um, breviary, the liturgy hours with, with night prayer. But everyone could just do a little examination of conscience and just look at the things that you've done in the past and even the ones that you've had some fond memories of and uh, ask God for the wisdom to see sin as he sees them. Uh, it's like when I had a allergy to dust mites. I had no idea what these creatures were. You can't see them. But then when the, when the allergist showed me an electron microscope picture of these hor- horrible things, look, I mean, it was something from the sci-fi channel, I, I began to realize that dust is not just something insignificant. And so through prayer and very, very, very modest and supervised mortification, it can help us get more and more detached. All right, put your Daniel the Prophet hat on. Jim writes in, What does the church teach about dreams and interpretations? Does God really speak to us in that way? He certainly could. I mean, it's not beyond his purview. He's done it before. Uh, the Lord spoke, to, obviously, uh, to St. Joseph. Uh, his feast day is coming up in, in March, and he was told in a dream, you know, uh, take Mary as your wife and you know, flee into Egypt and then come back 
back to Israel. So, uh, and we see in the, in the, throughout the scriptures, uh, people who were spoken to or a message was communicated to them in a dream. Where I only caution people is that, you know, the Lord, while he can speak to us in dreams, doesn't mean that every dream is coming from the Lord. And even things which are nice and pious, um, you know, scientists and psychiatrists tell us that um, most of our dreams are, you know, little movies that we made ourselves. You know, we're the producer, we're the director, and many times we're the main star or co-star in it, uh, whatever, or the antagonist or protagonist. Um, I, I'm careful when people put too much into dreams and they say, oh, the Lord, you don't know that. It could be a misfiring of, of neurons. Uh, Ebenezer Scrooge said it could be a piece of uncooked beef. Uh, you know, but I'm not discounting the fact that it can happen. I'm just saying that it's not a probable because the Lord's given us something much more um, evident and reliable. We call it divine revelation. Thank you for that great answer, Father Nebuchadnezzar. Um, <laughs> Cut the baby in half. <laughs> Gary writes in, how can I defend Mary's immaculate conception to a non-Catholic? How could explain her immaculate conception? Was that the question? That's right. Well, um, the best analogy I've heard in, 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 a, in a while, is, and I, I think this was from Father Fred Miller of Happy Memory. He, he passed away recently. Uh, he explained the fact that, you know, if you... Uh, saw this big hole in the road that would, you know, eat up a whole person. Um, you could certainly, if someone fell in there, rescue them. But it, it'd be better if you could put a protection on it, like a big board so they could walk over it and be protected from even going inside. Uh, basically, that's what Jesus did with his mother. He didn't let her fall into the hole of, of original sin. He protected her from it because Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. And Mary was preserved from sin by God for a purpose, so that she could give Jesus an untainted uh, human nature. It would be the same as if, you know, there was some genetic anomaly in somebody that, they, you know, they would pass it on to their children, and you were able to, you know, build a time machine, or you're a TARDIS, you're like a Doctor Who fan like I am. You go backwards in time and uh, stop the anomaly from occurring would be the best scenario. Uh, Jesus, uh, God did this for Mary, um, not because she earned it, but because God knew that she would say yes, and then she could then give Jesus not just a, a, a pure um, human nature, but also the fact that you know he's intimately connected, united with his mother, uh, particularly since there's no human father. And this was all part of God's divine plan. And Jesus did truly redeem uh, and sanctify her, uh, what he did on Good Friday, just in her chronological time frame, it, was, it went retroactively. But when you're God, you can do that. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Mark wants to know if a soldier committing a mortal sin, is a soldier committing a mortal sin if they kill someone in battle? No, unless, I have to make a provision here, unless it was an unjust killing. Uh, in time of war, um, and this goes back to the uh, ancient church itself, uh, it's always considered uh, legitimate for self-defense, if you have to deter an unjust aggressor to protect yourself, your family, or your country. So uh, those uh, brave men and women who have uh, been protecting us, and, you know, I see every day, you know, the, those wounded warriors, and now they're building houses for these um, veterans who have been um, hurt and uh, injured uh, when they're in Iraq or 
any one of the numerous uh, military uh, things that they are involved in. Where the line is drawn, however, is it's not between civilians and military, because as we well know, civilians can also bear arms. It's what we call a, a, a combatant or non-combatant. Uh, a combatant is someone who has a weapon and intends to use it. A non-combatant is a person, uh, particularly a civilian, who has no weapons and they are not uh, threatening your life. Uh, there's no uh, concept of an unjust aggressor being predicated of them. So a soldier cannot just indiscriminately shoot at people and say, well, you know, they're, they're on the wrong side. Um, they have to target military uh, installations or military personnel. Uh, if innocent people uh, are what they call collateral, uh, the hurt, you have to weigh, you know, the, using the principle of double effect, how much harm is going to be uh, occur if you do this or if you don't. But you can never directly, intentionally hurt someone who's innocent and, and would be considered unjust. But you can defend your country, especially if it's being attacked um, from outside. And finally, Tim wants to know what the role of the church councils are. Well, there's not that many of them in 2,000 years. You know, we've only had uh, um, two dozen of these uh, ecumenical councils. Uh, they're very rare, uh, and they do carry the weight of uh, infallibility when they declare something to be a solemn teaching, like, for instance, uh, the Council of Nicaea, you know, it taught us that uh, Jesus, you know, um, proceeds uh, from the Father. They're the same substance. They're not similar. Uh, the Father and the Son are equal. Uh, we have in the Council of Ephesus, Mary can be called the Mother of God. Um, we have um, many other the different councils. Fourth Lateran with transubstantiation, the Council of Trent, uh, that there's seven, only seven sacraments, and so forth. Uh, more than usual, we have the ordinary magisterium, which is when the Pope and the bishops united with him uh, teach an ordinary uh, teaching throughout the centuries. Um, in terms of ex-Cathedra statements, there's only been two in 2,000 years, Pius IX with the Immaculate Conception and Pius XII with the Assumption. So in terms of, of, of number-wise, the, the ex-Cathedra papal statements are the fewest, then the um, councils, and then the ordinary magisterium. Straight ahead, we'll talk to Mary in North Carolina, Brent in California, and we've got plenty of time for your calls as well. The number's 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Don't miss the latest political and cultural reporting and analysis on topics of interest to Catholics and people of faith on the world over with Raymond Arroyo. And you can get news from the world over in your email inbox every week. Simply uh, visit EWTN.com and click on subscribe. 
Again, two open lines for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. First up today is Mary in the great state of North Carolina listening on the EWTN app. Mary, you're on with Father John Tregilio. Hello, Father John Tregilio. I have a question about adult baptism. Um, I was in a conversation yesterday with a young lady who's going to be received into the Church at the Easter Vigil, so she'll be receiving baptism, Eucharist, and Confirmation. And she asked me if she needed to go to confession beforehand. And I said, well, I didn't think so, because I thought that baptism wiped away all sin. But I kind of got scared and said, well, I better double-check with that. (laughs) And so I told her I would call today and ask you that question. Um, You know, she's willing to do the um, Sacrament of Reconciliation, but uh, she just had that question. So if you could answer it, it would be great. Oh, I'm glad you called, because that's a very, very good question. And I'm sure there's other people in the same situation. Uh, Baptism does wash away all sin, original and actual sin. So an adult um, does not need to go to confession. And in fact, um, baptism is the gateway to the other sacraments. So someone really should be baptized before they go to confession. Uh, The purpose of the confession is for all sins committed after baptism. I know some priests thought, well, maybe it'd be good if they got in the practice. But really, uh, I mean, you could certainly have them go through or show them how it's done. Uh, not with <laughs> other person, obviously, but uh, you know, have them look in the in, in the confessional and show them you know how it, how it works. But spiritually and sacramentally, it's redundant because they're going to have their sins washed away at baptism, and then their first confession uh, will take place, you know, after their baptism. And um, this is one case where, unlike children, where they're baptized, they make their first confession, and then they make their first communion. With adults uh, who've never been baptized, uh, that, that, that's the sequence that, that, that happens. So I'm glad you called, and certainly, um, you know, um, welcome our, our sister into the new faith. You know what I think you see out there, Father, and this was the case when I entered the church a couple of decades ago, is that a lot of times I think RCIA programs will, will move along with the, catech- the, cat- the catechumens and the candidates together mm-hmm. on everything and so when the candidates are going through reconciliation i think they just kind of roll the catechumens through also oh yeah yeah and spe- and then this last weekend we had um the, the right of election where it's supposed to be the the catechumens who are about to be baptized they go to the cathedral they sign a book and then they say, all oh, those poor candidates they don't sign anything they don't go anywhere <laughs> so they're they're mixing apples and oranges yeah Thanks so much, Mary. That's a great phone call today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Next stop is the great state of California. Brent is listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Brent, you're on with Father John. Hello, Father John. Good afternoon. Uh, my question to you regards the, uh, the glorious mysteries, the fourth and the fifth one of the rosary, um, the ascension uh, of Mary. I'm c- curious how how long was Mary on Earth after Jesus' crucifixion before the ascension took place? And then the follow up is just out of my curiosity uh, in the um, uh, scripturally. How was the um, coronation of Mary 
documented like all you know, all the other um, mysteries are documented in the in the New Testament. Uh, can you give me a little background on on the coronation as well? Okay, uh, I'm glad uh, you called in, and uh, uh, those are good questions. Now we make a very clear distinction between the ascension of Jesus, where he, by his own divine power, took his risen and glorified body up to heaven, and the assumption of Mary. It's a passive um, action. Mary was taken up by God. So Mary was assumed. uh, Jesus ascended. And Jesus uh, took his mother up. Now, when it took place, the church is not solemnly defined. It's just that when her time on earth came to an end. Now, theologians were still debating, and they continued today, but even more so in the Middle Ages, did she physically die? We call it the Dormition of Our Lady, and in the Eastern Church, Eastern Catholic and Eastern Orthodox, that's what they basically uh, talk about, is that Mary fell asleep because she did not have to die without because she didn't have original sin. But Pope uh, John Paul the Great, St. John Paul, and I think even Pope Benedict, in, one of the, in a couple of their um, Angelus talks to the people in Rome when they're out in the balcony there, said that it makes sense that Mary probably did die because she joined with Jesus uh, all the way. Um, you know, she, although she was without sin, she accompanied Jesus all the way to Calvary, and she shared, um, you know, that's why we have the concept of, of um, uh, co-redemptrix and that, so that she willingly embraced death. But the fact is, whenever her time came up, whether she physically died or not, she was taken up to heaven. Now, it's true that in the other mysteries, there's a direct or indirect scriptural reference, but even with Mary's assumption and her coronation as queen of heaven and earth, first of all, it makes good sense because if Jesus is the king, Mary, she's the queen mother, and so she's queen by virtue of her relationship in the same way uh, Queen Elizabeth's mother was the queen mother because she was, first of all, the, the, the wife of the king, and then when her daughter became queen, uh, she was still had the title queen because her, she was the queen mother, just like uh, Solomon's um, mother was considered the, the queen mother. And in the book of Revelation or the book of Apocalypse, uh, depending on your persuasion, um, there's that beautiful scene. I think in chapter 12 where it says, There appeared in the heavens a great sign, the woman clothed with the sun, and on her head a crown of 12 stars, the moon beneath her feet. That's Mary up in the sky with a crown. So her assumption and her coronation are all uh, sort of referenced in that one passage. Thanks, Brent. Great question today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. A couple of open lines for you and plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Michelle is near Bloomington, Illinois today, listening on the Simple Radio app. Michelle, you're on with Father John Tregilio. Hi. Um, I have a question um, dealing with work and moral culpability with what is being done there. My, my husband, he's been self-employed for about a little over eight years, and lately his, his work has just taken a hit, and we just aren't making enough money um, to still take care of the whole family. You know, we, have, we still have five of our six children at home, and um, it's just not enough money anymore. So he's been looking at getting a weekend job. He had an interview with a company, and when he was there, he found out that they make catheters for in vitro fertilization. And so we're wondering how much culpability does he have if, if he were 
to take that job or should he just not take the job at all and look elsewhere to not be a part of that process? Okay, um, yeah, that's a, a, a good question to ask because we always want to look at what our possible potential culpability would be and we make a distinction in moral theology uh, between formal cooperation and evil where a person uh, wants and intends something bad or evil, sinful to happen, and then material cooperation where they may not necessarily want or intend something to happen, but they provide the means for it. And you have proximate um, material cooperation and remote. Remote is less culpable and maybe not any culpability whatsoever because it's so far down the chain. And then you've got the, the proximate, which is very close. So, for instance, somebody wants to kill someone and you know they're going to kill someone, you don't necessarily agree to them being killed, but you, you give them the gun and the bullets. Well, you're a material cooperator, and that's proximate. Where if you're running a, a sporting goods store and someone buys uh, a rifle or they buy a bow and arrow, I mean, you have no idea what they're going to do with it. Uh, you provided the material goods, but uh, you're completely innocent because it was a legitimate, innocent transaction that took place. Uh, if you work at a company that produces some things which are uh, not good, some things which are okay, um, as long as you're not directly involved, and like you said, if you need this job, you have to make that very clear that you are not um, directly or what we call um, proximate material cooperation. So are other cath are those ex exclusively being used for in vitro, or are there some catheters being used for uh, innocent, benign, uh, legitimate reasons? It's like if you work at the well, hospital. Well, yes, go ahead. Right. I, I'm sorry. I was going to say I, I, we're not absolutely positive, but we believe that they're only used for in vitro. Okay. Well, um, and is again, that the, is that the and also the other question would be is that the sole product produced by the company? Yeah. Are they making other um, things? That I'm not positive about. I know they make medical supplies. But I think this particular, um, you know, factory of this, this, this arm of it does in vitro. That, that's what he was told when he went there. She said, oh, okay. this, we help women get pregnant. He had no idea what was, you know, what exactly yeah. they did until she told him that it was part of, it was okay. used for in vitro fertilization. I would say the morally prudent and advisable thing is not to work there. But uh, if you have no option because you need the job, um, as long as he's not directly involved in producing and providing those for an immoral purpose. Because, like I said, there is there are benign uses for catheters. I mean, I see that television on TV uh, a lot that people need them and, and use them. Um, but if this is exclusively or primarily used for in vitro, then you know it's uh, used for something uh, wrong. Again, like I was going to say, if you work in a hospital that provides abortions, but, you know, you work in the cafeteria, you're you're most remote uh, material cooperation because you're providing food for the people who are doing immoral things, but, you know, you're, you're not, there's no formal cooperation, and what you're providing is not the means to affect the, the bad thing. Now, optimally, it would be better to work in a hospital where it's not being done at all, but obviously that may not be possible in some cases. So as long as you don't have the formal cooperation and it's not direct or proximate material cooperation. So in your particular case, I would do a little bit more research, but if if it's possible, it'd probably be better morally to try to look for another place or work there temporarily and then find another job.
Thanks, Michelle, for the phone call. We're on fire today, Father John. Great questions on an open line Monday. If you'd like to be part of the program, uh, straight ahead we'll talk to John on Long Island, Mary in Illinois, Pam in also in Illinois, and uh, we've got room for you and time for your calls at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. And if you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. Pick up the phone and give us a call at eight at uh, rather one two zero five two seven one two nine eight five. That's one two zero five two seven one two nine eight five. It's EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Straight back to the phones we go. John, as advertised, is on Long Island listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. John, thanks for holding. You're on with Father Tregilio. Thank you. Hi, Father John. Hello. Uh, I was hoping... Hi, I was hoping you could suggest uh, any books or resources to help me better understand uh, the Church before and after Vatican II, because everything I come across seems to be very opinionated, and I'm just looking for a straightforward, <laughs> just yeah. a very straightforward un- understanding. Yeah, good luck. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 next, the next unbiased history book that is written will be the first. <laughs> yes. Because, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it's like, in secular history... Um, everyone has a, a, an interpretation. I mean, they try to be as objective as possible, but you also define yourself in your own time frame so that the history books written before Vatican II obviously, you know, have a different viewpoint than the ones were written uh, after or before. Uh, and those who've lived through both, um, I find the one, um, the, the couple of good ones out there, but uh, James Hitchcock uh, has an excellent uh, church history book. Um, it certainly was written uh, post uh, Vatican II. Um, the one I would stay away from. There was one by a, a person named Bokencotter. Uh There's a lot of um, um, personal opinion in there, and some um, you know little, little agenda in there. Um, Philip Hughes, uh, which is pre-conciliar, uh, wrote a very good uh, church history book. I know the Daughters of Saint Paul. Uh, put out one that's that it's it's an easy read, but the the Hitchcock one is more recent, and um, I, I did not. I met him a few times, but I was uh, I knew his uh, wife a little bit more, better. But uh, that that's a good one to start, and um, you know I know EWTN provides a lot of good uh, um, church history books uh, at the catalog, and if you go to their bookstore at, at the shrine, but uh, definitely I would say take a. I think Philip Hughes would be difficult to get because it's out of print. But um, the Hitchcock book, you'll, you'll be able to find. Does that help, John? Yes, thank you very much. You're very welcome. We appreciate the phone call today. That frees up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. To the great state of Illinois we go. Mary is listening on Covenant Radio. Mary, you're on with Father John Tregilio. Hi, Father John. Thank you for taking my call. Good afternoon. Um, my question is, is I have a disabled son. He's 35 years old. He is severe to profound, so he can do absolutely nothing for himself. Um, he was baptized as a baby, 
and but I've not gotten him confirmed, and I know that he will go straight to heaven because there's no possible way he could have done anything wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wonder, does he have to be confirmed to go to heaven? Uh, a confirmation is not necessary for salvation. It's helpful, and even though, as you rightly point out, you know, if he's unable to commit sin, um, you know, there's, there's, he's got a, a sure way of, 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 you know, being taken care of by the by the Lord. However, I, I've been in parishes, my my own, and uh, when Father Pergenti was a pastor in Metuchen, New Jersey, um, where we had confirmation for people who did have mental challenges, who were not able to uh, necessarily. Um, Know, live on their own, um, people who had severe um, autism or Asperger's, uh, but they're, you're, they're getting the grace of the sacrament. So um, if it's possible, it's it's a wonderful blessing, but if it's not necessary, baptism is necessary, and then after baptism, it's very important to uh, receive Holy Communion. But I've, I've met individuals who were, you know, they didn't need to go to confession because they were incapable of, of committing sin. But certainly with confirmation, um, you get that extra grace. Uh, you get the indwelling of the Holy of the Holy Spirit, the gifts and the fruits of the Holy Spirit. So, if it's possible, um, and most parish pastors uh, are very um, uh, keen on on doing what they can, but if he dies without uh, confirmation, you know he's not in a in a bad place. Now, in my diocese in Harrisburg, uh, for a while, you know we were told by uh, the bishop. He wanted as many uh, couples to be confirmed before they're married because that's the preferred way. But if they weren't confirmed, it was still a valid marriage. Thanks so much, Mary. We appreciate the call. I liked that call from Illinois so much. We'll take another one. Pamela is a first-time caller. She's also in the great state of Illinois listening on the EWTN app. Pamela, welcome to the program. Thank you. Um, Good afternoon, Father. Uh, I am wondering, what is the difference between a grace and a blessing? Okay. Well, theologically speaking, a grace is a supernatural gift from God. There's sanctifying grace that makes us a child of God and allows us to get into heaven. And we get that first and foremost through baptism and then an increase of sanctifying grace through any of the other sacraments. There's... um. Also what we call uh, actual grace, which comes uh, from prayer that helps us do good works. A blessing can be used to describe anything natural or supernatural, which is a gift from God. So grace is, is specifically supernatural. It's invisible, um, but and it comes to us either sanctifying through a sacrament or actual through a sacramental. A blessing would be, you know, if you have a loving husband or wife, you've got wonderful children, uh, that's a, a natural gift, and so we would call that a blessing. Now, you also use the term to describe when a priest or deacon or bishop uh, blesses an item. That's also considered a blessing. But when you're comparing the word blessing to grace, uh, that's what I wanted to make the distinction. Is that clear, Pamela? Yes, thank you. You're very welcome. Thanks for the phone call today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. We head next to Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Victoria is another first-time caller listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Victoria, you're on with Father John Tregilio. Thanks, Father John. I appreciate your taking my call. I hope you're doing well. Thank um, you. My que- thank you. 
My question, Father, is how specifically did the Catholic Church develop their stance or their doctrine on fertility treatments, and specifically, what is their stance? And if there's scripture that backs it up, what what are those? Okay. Well, the the, the main thrust of the um, of the Church's position on the um, on assisting with with fertilization, uh, it's the same as uh, when you read Humani Vitae, which is from Pope Paul the Sixth letter. Most people think it only has to do with contraception. It's it covers the whole gamut, uh, conception as well as contraception. That you must use natural means, and that you don't want to separate um, unity and procreation, love and life, so that when you artificially conceive or you artificially contracept. Uh, that's considered a, 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 an artificial or a human separation of what God intended to be uh, connected. It, it's organically, integrally connected. And especially with uh, like uh, in vitro, the problem is that not only is the conception done um, artificially, but they'll take a, a number of eggs, fertilize them, and even though it's the, it's the husband's sperm and the, and the mother's uh, egg, they only use some of those embryos. The others they either destroy or freeze for, you know, in perpetuity. And that's an act of, of, of abortion then. So a lot of times they don't tell people that, that, well, we're going to only, you know, we're going to take like five or eight or ten eggs and we'll use the best three of them, okay? Um, but those, what about the ones that they're, they're conceived, they're human beings, and they just don't like the way they look or whatever. They may not be as viable, but they were created and they're human beings. So uh, in vitro fertilization is wrong for those very reasons, that it's, it's an artificial means of conceiving, which is the same um, problem with artificial uh, contraception. And we see uh, in Scripture not as specific, because they didn't have in vitro back then uh, at the time of the writing of the Bible. But we do have an instance uh, um, where Onan, all right, um, uh, the coitus interruptus, you know, uh, that was considered sinful then, and it's still considered sinful now. So the, there's a, a natural, um, from the theology of the body, connection uh, in marriage, conjugal love. It needs to be open to both the unity of the persons and open to the possibility of, of new life. Thanks, Victoria. We appreciate the call today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Next up is Joseph, a first-time caller in Arlington, Virginia. Listening on Guadalupe Radio, Joseph, you're on with Father John Trujillo. Yeah, thank you. Um, I've got a bit of a theological conundrum, more so than a spiritual conundrum, and it's the trying to reconcile Judas's, Judas Iscariot as a man, his free will, with the predestination of him having to hand over Christ. Ultimately, let me expand on that. Ultimately, it was because of Judas that Christ died and brought about the, our redemption. Um, my question specifically is, Judas as a man, as a human, um, had free will, but yet he was, from my perspective, and this is where the challenge is to me, predestined to hand him over. Okay, I understand your question, and, and that's a good one. Um, he was not predestined in the sense that he had no choice. He still had free will. And if Judas had not betrayed Jesus, they would have found another way. 
I mean, his enemies were so adamant, uh, the plan to kill him. So Judas, it was convenient, it was helpful, but if there was no Judas, or if he had chosen not to betray him, they still would have got Jesus on that cross. Um, so he was not an indispensable. He was certainly a helpful agent, but he could have said no. Uh, Peter denied him and then regretted it. Um, Judas could have said, no, I'm not going to do this. Um, whereas, like with the case of um, the Virgin Mary, she still had her free will, but you know, her cooperation uh, was needed um, because you know that's why she was given the gift of the Immaculate Conception. But God's hands are not tied in the, to the extent that it had to be this way and only this way. Uh, he did the, the way he's done it is according to his divine plan and providence. But the mystery is that just like with the devil, if Lucifer had not sinned, well, then people would say, well, then there would have been no serpent in the garden and Adam and Eve would not have been tempted. They could have still been tempted by their own. Uh, you know, the, the serpent just made it uh, more convenient that they be tempted. But uh, believe me, they, they still would have been put to, the, to a test. So uh, when, where there's evil, it's not necessary evil. That's a, a phrase I heard once uh, when I was in the seminary and I just was nauseated by it. Uh, they, the priest said, instead of do good and avoid evil that we see with St. Thomas Aquinas and St. Bonaventure, no, it's do as much good as possible and as little evil as necessary. There is no such thing as a necessary evil. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still time for your calls at 833-288-3986. William is another first-time caller driving through the great state of Illinois. William, thanks for holding. You're on with Father John Tregilio. All right. Well, I'm actually driving into the state of Illinois from Missouri. <laughs> at any rate, thank you. I appreciate EWTN very much. I uh, listen to it all the time. I, this is a follow-up. You, you answered the, the initial question I had about the reason in vitro is considered immoral. My personal reason for asking is that I have a daughter who developed cancer, had to have a hysterectomy. Um, my daughter also lost her faith after she went away to college, so she didn't get married in the church when she had the hysterectomy due to the cancer. She did save some of her eggs. Uh, she and her husband have not yet decided whether to go through with the in vitro procedure, but I find myself wanting to have a grandchild, and I feel that I'm sinning in that. And then I also don't know what if they do go through with it. How do I deal with her and a child if there is one? Okay. Well, I'm, I'm, those are very frank but very good questions. Let's start with the, the, the easiest and basic one. Uh, whatever children she has, you know, they're your grandchildren. You must respect and love them, uh, even if they come about through means that are not... Uh, ethically or morally approved. Uh, that's not a green light to go ahead with it, but, you know, she has children, they're your grandchildren, and you can't punish them for how they came to be. Um, if she had a hysterectomy and, you know, they removed her reproductive um, parts, okay, uh, removed the womb and that, um, she's going to have to have, it. it's not going to be an ordinary case of just having her eggs then fertilized and then implanted because, there's other parts that would be removed because of the hysterectomy. So um, there's where it's going to be even more problematic morally because then they're going to use a surrogate, someone else, uh, another woman, uh, you know, bear the child for a certain amount of time. The church would certainly be against that. 
Um, I understand the motivation, okay, um, because I had a case where a young boy was tragically killed, and before he died, the mother had uh, some of his sperm removed, and she thought, well, I'm going to have grandchildren someday. Um, she was going to have um, you know, either a woman be impregnated or I don't know how it was going to take place. But, I mean, the, the motivation was good in the sense that who doesn't want to have, um, you know, their own children or grandchildren? But the ends never justifies the means. Even St. Paul tells us that in, in the New Testament. So even a good intention or a good object has to be obtained through morally good means. And the artificial in vitro fertilization, the surrogate parenthood, um, you know, the test two babies, any, any number of these things, it's immoral means even if the end itself is either neutral or good. And certainly it would be good to have uh, a grandchild. So I would say yeah, you don't want to promote or condone it at the same token. If she does do it, that's your grandchild. So you can't punish the grandchild uh, because of that. And, you know, I can certainly have empathy uh, with, with your daughter and understand where they're coming from. But uh, again, it's like uh, we have to always do what's morally right from the beginning through the process to get to the end. What about the notion of, of William being sinful in, you know, desiring to have a grandchild from his daughter? No, that's not a bad thing. I mean, uh, the desire for grandchildren is a natural good. But again, it's how it's obtained. It'd be the same, and this is just analogy, okay? If someone's not married at all, they're living um, with someone that's not their husband or wife, their child is still a child, and that would be your grandchild if they were born out of wedlock, but we're not promoting or advocating it. So, I mean, you, you don't punish the kid for you know, what, what his mom and dad did, uh, but the same token, we want people to say what the best thing is what God asks us to do, that mom and dad be validly married and that the child be conceived in a natural, morally proper way. God bless you, William. We'll keep you in our prayers. Absolutely. Next up is Leonard in the great state of California watching us on YouTube. Leonard, you are on with Father John Tregilio. Hi, Father John. Um, two parts to my question. The first part is how how many hours in advance should I have um, a meal before I actually attend mass or receive it or receive uh, the body of Christ in communion? Okay, I I only I only picked heard of the last part. What was the first part of his question? Where, are you asking? Yeah, about... I have two parts. I have two parts of my oh, question. Oh, two the parts. Okay. Part, yes. The first part is um, uh, how many hours in advance should I have should I have something to eat before I actually attend mass or receive the body of Christ in communion? Okay. You, the the rule of fast, the communion fast, is one hour before reception. It's not one hour before mass. It's one hour for reception. So if you got a long winded priest or deacon, you might you might get an hour in just before mass, but it's not that common. Um, but it's an hour before reception of communion. So at communion time, chronologically, the 60 minutes goes from that point. It's not from the beginning of the Mass. And in, you know, prior, when my mom and dad were kids, it was three hours, and in my grandparents' time, it was from midnight on. So we got a, a much uh, easier uh, way of doing it now. And then what's your second one? Uh, the second part of the question is, I, I went to, uh, I went to uh, for Mass yesterday being Sunday, and... Um, uh, there was an announcement at the beginning of mass saying that uh, um, you need to have uh, uh, you need to have food if, if you're uh, 
Um, you need to have your breakfast, you know, at least an hour or so before mass or before communion. I was very confused whether it was before mass or before communion. And so I didn't receive communion thinking that, you know, I had mm-hmm. done something wrong. And I was yes. in a confused state of mind. So uh, since I didn't receive communion, is that going to be a model sin? No, no, because you don't. You are not obligated to receive Holy Communion. It's a privilege and and uh, to to be able to go. But the uh, what we call the uh, Easter duty is that we receive communion at least once uh, during um, Easter time. Um, so the fact that you you're certainly we have to go to Mass every Sunday and Holy Day of Obligation. We are not morally bound to go to communion every time, but we're allowed to go. To communion, and at the most, uh, you can go twice in one day. So the fact that you didn't go because you, and there's again, where if you don't see somebody going to communion, you don't know is because they committed a mortal sin, they didn't go to confession. Maybe they're not Catholic, maybe they're not in a valid marriage, or maybe they had a bagel or donut on the way to church. So we can't make any snap judgments on those who are not going to communion. So you did nothing wrong. And like I said with the first part, if it was 60 minutes from the time of communion, that you had something to eat, you could certainly go to communion. But the fact that you did not, you did not commit any, uh, there was no wrong done there. You know, check out the Holy Mass from Our Lady of the Angels Chapel right here on the campus of EWTN every day at 8 a.m. Eastern Time right here on EWTN Television and Radio. Tara is a first-time caller in Kansas City, Missouri, listening on Catholic Radio Network. Tara, you're on with Father John. Oh, hi. Uh like everyone says, thank you for taking my call. Um, I hope I, I can make this concise. Um, in the Mass, when Father is getting right, you know, stands up and goes over to uh, proclaim the Gospel, I had gone to a teaching Mass where that priest had said that it, it, the priest has to cross the altar, the way that the, the, it's set up. He has to walk in front of the altar and honor before going over to the ambo or whatever to read the gospel and that it's when he if you will hits the altar that that is then when he continues walking he is in persona Christe, and that's where he's proclaiming the word of god i then heard somebody saying no actually it's the priest at ordination he's then functioning in persona Christe, most especially at uh, confession and so I guess my question is, you know, are, are we, when does that occur, or you know, is this just you know, certain people think that? And I've been waiting until the priest gets to the altar, then I stand up, although everybody else stands up you know, when he does. And so is this just uh, cultural kind of things, or, or what, uh, is there something behind it? Yes, um, <clears throat> uh, that, that, that's... Uh... I have to say, I haven't heard that question before, but it's a good one. <laughs> um, when a priest is ordained, uh, he's configured to Christ at that moment. And that's when he becomes an altar Christus. Uh, he becomes another Christ. He acts in persona Christi, in the person of Christ, when he celebrates Mass, when he says over the bread and wine, this is my body, this is my blood. When in the confessional, he says, I absolve you from our sins. Or when he baptizes, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son. So when he acts as a priest, he's acting in the person of Christ. He is an altar Christus all the time since his ordination. And that little trip to the pulpit, um, I mean, 
someone's adding extra allegory in there that uh, is not necessarily dogmatic. It's it's a nice pious thought, but um, when the priest comes into the walks down the aisle, he's there as the representative of Christ. He's an altar Christus. So yes, we stand when the priest comes in for mass. Uh, it's not just when he's in the sanctuary. It's not just when he's at the altar or at the pulpit, but it's when he's acting as Christ. That's when we say that's when his, he's acting in persona Christi in a manifest way, but uh, there's an ontological change that takes place uh, when a man's ordained, and when the bishop puts his hands on his head, the uh, imposition of hands, uh, then they pray the, the prayer of, of consecration upon the priest. He's a priest, and he will be an altar Christus for the rest of his life. Now, when he misbehaves and does something horrible and despicable, he's not acting in persona Christi, he's acting as an individual person with his own free will, but the good thing is that even, God forbid, a bad priest still validly celebrates the sacraments. It's not something we want priests to do. We want them to be in the state of grace. But you don't have to worry as a recipient of wondering, is, was that valid? Because uh, the priest may have done something wrong. It's valid if he does it the right way. And quickly, we head to Jacob in Springfield, Illinois, listening on Covenant Radio. Jacob, just about a minute and a half left with Father John. What's your question? Hello, Father. How are you? Fine. So my question is sort of a sacramental question. It kind of revolves particularly around baptism and confirmation. So let's assume for a minute that the um, you've gone to confession and you've partaken in the certain steps in order to receive that sacrament. So for children, it's receive Holy Communion in addition to baptism and things like that. But if the child is, let's say, that somehow they were still technically, I guess, in a state of mortal sin, um, receiving that sacrament, are those two sacraments still valid, even though you receive them in the state of mortal sin? Yes, yes, because you do not have to, you do not have to be free of mortal sin to validly receive the sacrament. It would just be a sacrilege. It's just like a couple who's getting married. If they both have mortal sin on their soul and they go to confession, they're still validly uh, married. You're validly confirmed. You're validly ordained. Um, it's just that you're, you're, if you know about it, you're committing sacrilege. But the validity uh, is not contingent on your spiritual state. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? Benedica vos omnipotens Deus, Pater, et Filius, et Spiritus Sanctus. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father John Tregilio, our producer, Michael McCall, our call screener, Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Back at it tomorrow with Father Wade Menezes talking faith, family, and fellowship. Until we get together on Open Line Tuesday, God bless.